0: What brought you here today? Car is not the answer I'm looking for. (laughs) Ron's a car guy. He may be thinking car. (laughs) Now I'm not thinking about transportation. When I ask that question I'm thinking about motivation. Motivation. What was it that motivated you to be here where you are today? Well certainly Certainly hope it wasn't dread. I hope you didn't dread coming. And I also really hope that it wasn't just duty that motivated you to come, but rather delight. Delight. That you were delighted as you anticipated coming together with the people of God to study from God's Word, to worship God. We trust in spirit and in truth. You know, it is a beautiful day. And we have almost now come through the the season of renewal, as it is called, spring. I love what the late Franklin Camp wrote about this. He wrote, the resurrection of Christ matches the resurrection of the natural world. Just as the earth is breaking from its wintry grave, Christ came forth from a grave grave that could not hold him. In the sepulcher and in the garden in which it stood, the same divine process was going on. The natural, the symbol of the spiritual, each casting light on the other. Go into the field in the spring, and everything will speak to you of the resurrection. Life is at work in every bud, in the bark of every tree, in the greening tint of every brown hillside. A month or two before everything, a month or two before everything was still and cold, bound in the fetters of death, covered with its shroud of snow. But now life is coming back to a dead world. A light tide is stirring and rushing through every vein. It is rising, rising from its tomb, clothing itself in green, weaving robes, adorning itself with beauty. This annual resurrection reminds us of that great resurrection on which all hopes depend. We're not permitted to forget. Year by year spring weaves its garlands around every tomb. Nature repeats the glad song the Lord is risen. And then he asks shall not those of us who have passed through baptism a spiritual resurrection to a new life take part in this song of gladness and deliverance. Let me ask those of you who are here this morning who have passed through that spiritual resurrection to a new life. Are you still taking part in the song of gladness and deliverance as you once did? Or has the joyful melody been muted? or even silenced altogether because the love that produced it needs renewing. This is a very crucial matter. A very crucial matter. This matter of love and whether or not our love is still not only where it was, but whether or not it has intensified and grown or has it waned. Has that song of gladness Become muted. It's a crucial matter because it's not only impossible to please God without faith, Hebrews 11, verse 6, but it is impossible to please Him without faith, motivated and perpetuated by love. I can prove that. I can prove that from both the Old and New Testaments. And I'd like for us to think about that this morning for a few minutes because it is such a crucial matter. If you go with me back to the book of Deuteronomy, we see a crucial Old Testament passage that that demonstrates the connection that has always existed between love and law. You know, there are those today who say, well, if you love enough, law doesn't matter. That love and law are mutually exclusive. That's never been true, nor is it true today. Love and law are mutually inclusive, and love is to motivate law-keeping, and that's the way God always intended it, even under that covenant that was not the better covenant under which we live today. Think about it. Listen to Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 8. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. What we have just read is a part of what is called the Shema among the Jews. Their morning and evening Service that many engage in contains these words that begin, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God. Then turn over a little bit into the book of Deuteronomy where Moses as that second generation of Israelites was about to enter the promised land, because the first generation had been faithless and had fallen in the wilderness after wandering for 40 years, all those above 20 years of age, those men, all that generation, they were gone, and now this new generation was to enter the promised land, and he had set before them blessings and curses. And here's what he said about the curses. In verse 45 of Deuteronomy 28. Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue and overtake you until you are destroyed, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep His commandments and His statutes which He commanded you. And they shall be upon you for a sign and a wonder and on your descendants forever. Now listen to verse 47. Because you did not serve the Lord your God. Period? No. There's no period there. Because the Lord, you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. You're going to be cursed. You're going to lose your inheritance in the land if indeed you fail to serve but more specifically because you failed to serve because you lost your love and therefore you lost your motivation and you failed to continue to serve with joy and with gladness of heart for the abundance of everything God had given you. When we look at 1 Chronicles 28 and verse 9, as David was on his deathbed, The admonition to his son Solomon was this, And as for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father, and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Some of us are old enough to remember an old song back when I was a teenager. To know him is to love him. Remember that old song? Well, that's what David is telling his son Solomon about God. He does not say immediately, serve him. He says, know him. Know God. Come to know God. Understand God. Understand his love. Understand his grace. Understand his mercy. Understand his justice. Know him and then what? Serve him. How? With a loyal heart and with a willing mind because that's what God has always wanted. When you go over to Isaiah chapter 5, you find an Old Testament parable in Isaiah chapter 5 about a vineyard that turns out to be Israel, God's people. God's people who who had returned to God who had given them so much rebellion and complaint and murmuring after all that God had done for them. And verse 4 of Isaiah 5 is the key rhetorical question in this context. Here it is. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? God is asking Israel, Tell me what more I could have done for you than I have done. and Why is it that when I expected... When I expected good grapes, you brought forth wild grapes, sour grapes. I did everything to motivate you to serve me out of what? Out of love and gratitude. Now those are a few key Old Testament passages that demonstrate God has always been concerned with the motivation for serving him to be loved. That it be love. Now when we come to the New Testament, Certainly that is also the case. And as we have often said, under the new covenant, we bask in the sunlight age of the gospel. We bask on this si- in the sunlight on this side of the cross, on this side of Calvary, where the culmination of God's love and grace and mercy was shown in the giving of His only begotten Son. How much more motivated should we be to keep that love light burning, so to speak, within our hearts how much more motivated should we be to serve God as God has always desired to be served? And if he could ask Israel of old, what more could I have done for you? What would he ask us? And how much more meaningful perhaps would that question be if it were asked of us today? What more could I have done than giving you my own a begotten son? Therefore it shouldn't be dread that brings you here. It shouldn't be duty alone that brings you here. It ought to be sheer delight. Sheer delight that brings you here not just Sunday morning for worship, but an hour earlier and a few hours later this evening and a few days later on Wednesday. Why? Because you can find Wednesday night in Scripture? No, you won't find Wednesday night. What you do find is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, all your mind. And what you do find is seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and how do i manifest that i'm doing that and so we live in the sunlight and jesus in john 14:15 summarized it so beautifully didn't he when he said if you love me keep my commandments if you fear me if you dread no if you love Keep my commandments. I've said before that I believe Galatians 5, 6 provides one of the finest summary statements of everything we're to be about that one could ever find in Scripture. Galatians 5, verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith which works through love. Not just faith that works, but faith that works through love. Paul, writing to those who were threatened by Judaizing teachers, trying to get them to go back under that former covenant, said to them, that's not what's important. What is dead and what has been nailed to the cross is not important. What is important is the cross and the obedient faith that is motivated by love. Is it possible? Is it possible for us to attend services every time the doors are open and still be in need of renewing our love? Indeed, that's a possibility. Indeed, it is. Because what was once service to God motivated by that love can basically devolve into service that becomes more formalistic and ritualistic and that is based more upon duty than it is upon that love that once characterized my life as a Christian. When I first came out of the waters of baptism, for example, and I realized that I was truly cleansed from sin by the blood of Christ. What about that first enthusiastic devotion? Is it still there as it once was? Has it even deepened and grown? And is it possible for it to wane and to diminish and to even disappear to the point that the Lord, that the Lord even though we are doing an awful lot in the kingdom would still have reason to condemn us? Is that even a possibility? Let's go to Revelation chapter 2 and see not just the possibility of it, but the reality of it. In the letters to the churches of Asia, the first of which is Ephesus, that's exactly what we read about. Listen to the first verses of chapter 2 of Revelation. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. If we stop right there... We would think we're reading about a congregation that has nothing but the commendation of the Lord. But commendation is only one of five parts of this letter. Because the commendation is followed by condemnation. And then commands. And then the consequences of failing to keep those commands. And finally, comfort in the seventh verse. There are some words of comfort. But you see, verse 4 says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. Despite the fact that I commend you for your works, your labor, that indicates that, in, that word indicates intense toil, hard work. This was a church that was hard at work. Your patience, meaning your steadfastness, your standing up under trials, under difficulty, and you're standing against those who are evil. You are willing to discipline. You're willing to practice church discipline. And so he commends them initially for their deeds, for their discipline, and for their doctrine. All of these were intact. But he said, you have left your first love. What does that mean? It has to mean that all that they were doing was no longer motivated as it once was and that they had allowed their first enthusiastic devotion to serving God to lapse, to lapse into duty, to lapse into whatever. But it was not being motivated by love. What had caused it? What causes it today among those who are Christians who at one time were enthusiastic and, and involved and motivated properly. Well, many times it is attachment to the world. And many times the world just simply creeps in and, and drains the individual of that first enthusiastic devotion, that love. And so you can't love both and still be pleasing to God. Jesus said that, didn't he? No man can serve two masters. You'll either hate one and and love the other or despise one and be loyal to the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot have it both ways. And so many times the world, and that's one of Satan's greatest tools, he'll use the influence of the world to diminish the love and enthusiasm that we once had for the Lord. And when will he go to work on that When will he really go to work on that enthusiastic soul who comes forth from that watery grave of baptism and expresses in so many words, this is the happiest day of my life. When will Satan go to work on that individual? That same day. (laughs) That same day. In whatever way he can. And so attachment to the world is a cause that leads to a need for renewing one's love and sometimes it's adversity. Attachment to the world and adversity from without that is those outside the church who become our adversaries and who do not want to see us put them to shame so to speak by the lives that we are living and so they in effect try to convince you you don't need to be so on fire. For the Lord, as the expression goes. You don't need to be so enthusiastic. You need to calm down. <laughs> you need to kind of be reasonable about this new thing you've found called Christianity. And so old associations tend to become adversaries to the extent that they don't want to be shamed by your new way of living. They want you to be more like you once were so that they can still be comfortable around you. There are all sorts of adversaries from without, But many times, loss of love can be from adversaries from within. And much of the adversity sometimes tragically comes from within, even from among brothers and sisters. Why do you think it is that it has been said that we are losing more preachers than we're training? I hope that's still not true, but I guess it. one time it has been, because I've heard that for a lot of years now. Why would that be? Well, it may be because when a student in a school of preaching like Tri-Cities or Memphis or East Tennessee, someplace like that, is ready to graduate, he he is really, really enthused about getting into that new work, wherever it may be. And after he's been into that new work for a while, then the devil will even use brothers and sisters, to discourage in various ways. He'll use any of us that he can if we'll let him. And so they become discouraged over time, and they decide they're going to go back into secular work rather than continue to deal with the adversities that have come. Sad. And yet, that is the case many times. I know it is. And so it's attachment to the world sometimes that may cause people to lose their first love and adversity that they face from without and adversity they face from within. That's why we've got to redouble our efforts to make sure our love is not waning or that it hasn't diminished. And so the command comes next after the the commendation and the condemnation. Here's the command in verse 5 to the church at Ephesus. How do you renew that love? Remember, that's the first thing. Remember. Remember where you once were. Remember that time when you were were motivated by that love. Remember and then repent and then repeat. Do the first works. That's what we find here, isn't it? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. They were already working. I know your works. I know your labor and patience. But do the first works motivated as you were once motivated. And let that love permeate the congregation where you are. And let that love be seen in every relationship that you sustain as it once did and what's the consequence then after the command is given what's the consequence the consequence is very serious he doesn't say i really want you to i really want you to do what you're doing for me out of love but if you can't and if you're not i'm just glad you're doing it no he doesn't say that he says unless you repeat unless you remember and repent and repeat and recapture that love and build upon that love as you once had it, unless you do, I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, the lampstand is a figurative reference for the church itself. I'm going to remove you from my approval. That's how important this motivation is. How important it was and how important it is to every congregation today. I will remove your lampstand from its place. I don't know immediately what happened after these words were penned and delivered, but I know where the church at Ephesus is now. Nowhere. It's non-existent. You couldn't find it to save your life, as the expression goes, if you go into that part of the world. There's no indication that it was ever there in that part of what is now Turkey. And then he commends them again. I will give you this, in effect, he says, verse 6, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Lord says, you discipline. You discipline. And I'll give you that, and I commend you for that again, but the consequences of losing that First, enthusiastic devotion. The consequence is going to be tragic beyond description. But then finally, after the commendation and after the condemnation and the commands and then the consequence, he does close this letter through John with some comfort, doesn't he? He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. You just get that love back. You recapture that first enthusiastic devotion, and you keep up those works motivated as you were once motivated. And I will give to eat, you to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Love deepens, doesn't it? Love grows, or should. What about your marriage? If you're married today, or even if you are a widower or a widow today, and you can think back upon your years with your husband or with your wife, you were no doubt enthusiastic when you first fell in love, as the expression goes. You were excited. But what about years later? What about many years down the road? Did that commitment and that excitement turn to complacency and taking your spouse for granted? I hope not, surely not. Oh, I can remember the first time I met this lady, my wife. I remember the first time I saw her in the humanities building on the University of Tennessee campus. And when I saw her, something clicked right there. My determination set in. And ultimately, I was blessed to have her become my wife. Was I excited then? Oh, yes. But am I more excited now? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. What I feel now pales in comparison. Or what I felt then pales in comparison to what I feel now. Even though I was very much in love. Back then. I've been trained too, Steve. (laughs) But you know part of that training? Part of that training is growing closer and closer together. The longer that you are together, you don't become complacent. You become more committed. More committed. Why, I even took some of the grandchildren one day when we were visiting on the UT campus. I said, I'm going to take you to the humanities building. I want to take you downstairs and I want to take you to the very room where I first saw your nana. And we did that. I'm silly like that. Sentimentalist. We took a picture together because that was an important place to me. It's the first time I ever laid eyes on her. But I can tell you right now, that relationship is far, far deeper than it was back then. And I'm sure so many of you, hopefully all of you who are in that marriage relationship or who have been blessed by that wonderful relationship, can say that same thing. Well, what about our marriage to Christ? The Bible makes it abundantly clear that the church is the bride of Christ. and You are the church if you're a Christian this morning. So where is your love for Him now versus your love for Him when you first became His bride? When you first became married to Christ? It should be just as that marriage relationship deepened, stronger. Is that the case? If not, repent. Oh, I'm not asking you to step out and come down the aisle necessarily because the repentance that some might need to make if they find themselves in a situation where their love needs to be renewed may be a private thing altogether, may not be known publicly at all, may just be something you need to recommit to to God privately and repent of. And determine then to rekindle that love and then let that love motivate you and I guarantee you it will revolutionize your life as it once did if it is not continuing to do it. I love the passage and I've quoted it often that summarizes so beautifully this love and what it should do for us. As Paul expressed it in Second Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. That's all about love. The love of Christ compels us. And we've mentioned before that word compels Translated constraineth in the King James means to shut up close to him, in to confine, to surround. And so Paul is saying, I'm surrounded by love. I am surrounded by love. And that's what we need to be teaching and preaching biblical love. Love that will motivate us to live. For God as God wants us to be motivated. Oh yes, love disciplines. As we've seen from Revelation 3.19, Jesus said, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. And the church at Ephesus was involved in discipline. They were involved in good works. They wouldn't tolerate evil. They were standing against those who were false apostles. But what was motivating all of that? Obviously it was not what once had motivated them to do it. Let's make sure we never lose that motivation. Let's make sure we're determined to recapture it if any of us have lost that. I like this quote very much from a book by the late Nelson M. Smith, gospel preacher, who died back in 2003. It's a quote from his book that was entitled What is this thing called love? And this was in the chapter entitled Love and Preaching. And he says, we have perhaps all too often succeeded in making Jesus only a better lawgiver than Moses and have made men to tremble because they have sinned against the law of God and have not made them weep because they have sinned against the love of God. We make them to fear because they have broken the law of God but have not made them to grieve over having broken the heart of God. We have only succeeded in making men the slaves of fear and duty rather than the radiant servants of joy. Every gospel preacher has an obligation. Every Christian really has an obligation not to make others feel as though they're the slaves of fear and duty but to encourage them to become rather the radiant servants of joy. And so let me ask you, examine yourselves and answer the question, are you a slave of fear and duty and no longer a radiant servant of joy? If you haven't obeyed the gospel, you're not a servant, period, are you? And you need to do that to become that radiant servant of joy. Believing with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, you must repent of your sins, confess him to be the Christ, and be buried in baptism for the forgiveness of your sins. And you can come forth from this watery grave of baptism as a radiant servant of joy. But if you once did that and can remember when you were that radiant servant of joy, but you honestly cannot say that you still are that radiant servant of joy and make that right not necessarily publicly because as I said it may require no public confession of all the only sins that need to be confessed publicly are those that have been committed publicly and are known to others but examine your love examine your love and ask yourself honestly am I a slave of fear and duty or am I a radiant servant of joy If you're one who does need to come home publicly because you have sinned in a public way, then we plead with you to do that as we extend the Lord's invitation as we stand to sing to encourage.